Good morning, fellowship. Whether you're online in Platinum, I got to praise God with those in Platinum. It was fantastic. Uh, But wherever you are, it's great to uh, have you here praising God together. What, What could you do that is more important than that? That is happening in heaven right now. You know, when Jesus says, you know, in the Lord's Prayer, to do on earth what is happening in heaven, well, that's what's happening in heaven. We're obeying the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth. We are praising his name. I just want to say a few things. Firstly, a big shout out to our AV team and those who are on the online tech crew that make it happen. They allow the word of God and the praise of God to go out so well. We often thank the people up, the show ponies up the front, but they're behind the scenes. So let's, let's give them a warm round of applause. Thanks, guys. We've got a, uh, a marriage weekend coming up, and I just want to commend it to you for a moment. You know when Jesus says, a man, or God, Moses says in Genesis 2, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one, one flesh? This weekend will particularly focus on that one flesh intimate relationship uh, within marriage. And so we've got some people who are expert in that field to speak wisdom. Remember, marriage is like a truck parked halfway up a hill. If you put it into neutral, it will just roll down and cause a lot of damage. You've got to keep working at your marriage. As one who's been nearly married for 40 years, I know you're thinking, well, you only look 40. No, I'm only joking. But you just never stop having to work at marriage. It's just the reality of it. You can't stick two sinners together in the same house and, uh, and not expect that there's not going to be hard work there. So let me commend that weekend away. Uh, You've got the QR code on the screen. Why don't we turn to prayer now? Heavenly Father, we, we're asking, Lord, that, that your Spirit, your Holy Spirit, will cut us to the heart. By that we mean, Lord, that your Spirit will do sur- surgical work with his loving scalpel, a scalpel that seeks to heal. Father, give us tender hearts. Lord, whenever we read your Scriptures and whenever we hear your Word, we know we're either going to be comforted in our afflictions or afflicted in our comfortableness. And today, Lord, as we head from that reading, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strong word. So give us tender hearts by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at the end of chapter 4 of Acts and the beginning of chapter 5. And the overarching idea is very simple. The spirit who radically transforms us is the spirit who will not be mocked. So let's firstly look at the spirit who so radically transforms. It's been a great ride in the book of Acts, amen? These spirit-filled Christians have gone from scared lambs to bold lions, powerfully testifying to Jesus because they are so grateful for his forgiveness. The Spirit brings a radical power to testify to Jesus. Look at verse chapter 4, verse 33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And we see in Acts the church continuing to grow. And Luke is not embarrassed to name numbers. From 12 to 120 to 3,000 to 5,000 and then multiplied after that. Because behind every number is a person, and every person has a story of transformation. 
The story of fellowship is exactly the same over 15 years, of which I had very little to do with. I can stand back and look at that graph, the numbers just growing from 27 right through to 4,600 in 15 years. What a wonderful work God has done. You know in your own life and in the life of church, sometimes you think, wow, everything just seems to be going right. You know, and it's a nice feeling. And that's exactly what is happening here in the church here at Acts chapter 4. It's a season of fruitfulness where the word of God is going out and people are being saved. Like we saw this morning in the baptisms yet again. And a season of faithfulness where transformed hearts are generous and wanting to serve. And you've got these beautiful descriptions in Acts 4 of this transformed community. And it's clear that the Spirit is bringing a radical unity of believers. Look at verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. You know, when there's a deep unity in Christ, there's a deep unity towards each other. One always leads to... I like what John Piper says. He says, when you become united to Jesus by faith, you become united to people by love. One always follows the other. You can't have a me-Jesus relationship that's going well and not a me-other-people relationship going bad. It doesn't work. You can't love Jesus unless you love his people. Which then means the Spirit also brings a view, a radical view or review of our possessions, our stuff. Look at this. To me, it's one of the most shocking statements in the Bible. Chapter 4, verse 32 no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Wow. I know there have been some great miracles, but that is one of the greatest miracles of all. A love for God cutting us loose from a love for things. You know, they still had private ownership. It wasn't like they became communists. Uh, they met in each other's homes. But no one claimed that their possessions were their own. My house is your house. My car is your car. My food is your food to eat. My time is your time to enjoy. I went from living a, a life of me, myself, and I to we, us, ours. If you sit tight with Jesus, all of a sudden you will sit loose with your stuff, happy for it to be shared. And the Spirit brings this radical generosity. You know, the people often say the mark of a spiritual believer is they speak in tongues. No, the gift of tongues is given to some Christians, not all. But you know someone's born again when? When you start to see their generous heart. Martin Luther said the last thing to get converted is always the wallet. Because <laughs> when that gets converted, you know you've got a born again believer. And it wasn't that you could you know, borrow my car and sit on my sofa. Look, look what was happening in the community here in verse 34. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Wow, that's sacrificial. You know, it wasn't, not everyone owned property. You know, so it's speaking to those who had more, and the Spirit of God was doing a work in them, Selling property, giving the money, laying it at the feet of the apostles who didn't, you know, line their own bank accounts. No, they used that to actually distribute it to the poor from time to time. Didn't happen every week, but it happened regularly. 
God was doing a beautiful work in everyone, including those who had more. At my last church, uh, we, we built a building on land that had been given to us by a man called Mr. Lamb 130 years ago. I always, we always thank God for him every year, and we thought it was a gift that just kept giving. All that ministry that happened, he made a one-off decision, and all the ministry that happened over 130 years on that land. Churches around the world are built on pieces of property that were given by some family, sometimes in an inheritance, in a will, given over that others, the people of God, may enjoy the space to worship. And as a rule, everything we own belongs to God. You know that, don't you? And you know why, you, why you, when you know that? When you're dead. <laughs> because you can take nothing with you. What do they say? There's no U-Haul that follows, you know, no, no uh, removalist van that follows a hearse. And it's always good to remember, whenever you get any kind of income, whatever form it gets, always give a portion of that back to God, first portion. If it's your wage, is it an inheritance? Is it you know, some investment that you've made that's gone well? Always think, first portion, back to the Lord, his kingdom, his people. Uh, each uh, early this year, I spent time with someone and they, uh, for a couple of days, and they, they kept telling me, three times they told me in two days, that when they win the lottery, they're going to be, they're going to be so generous, they're going to give to this and that. <laughs> I call it theoretical generosity. It doesn't cost very much. And you kind of walk around thinking, I'm such a generous person <laughs> when you've given absolutely nothing. That's not what Jesus is looking at. The Spirit unleashes here generosity, though, by grace. And that's important. Verse 33. And God's grace, that is God's undeserved love towards his enemies, us, was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. It wasn't inspired by the law of God, but by the grace of God, loved. It wasn't, they weren't made to, forced to, have to. They wanted to. It gave them joy from the heart. Why? Because the Lord always loves a cheerful giver. And God was doing a transformative work in their heart. And the Spirit was concerned ultimately in all of that to meet the needs of everyone in the church because everyone matters in God's family. You know, in the Old Testament, there were checks and balances to make sure that the widows, the orphans were taken care of. Even in Acts chapter 6, we see that um, a group of Greek-speaking widows were not being taken care of, so they raised up deacons to make sure that they were included. Why? Because in the end... Look what God says in Deuteronomy 15.4, as God's people were about to enter into the promised land 1,300 years before, he said this, However, there need be no poor people among you. Why? For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. God is saying, I'm going to take care of you, so you make sure you take care of each other, especially those who can't take care of themselves. That's on you. And the more you have, the more responsibility that is. It's, a, it's a, a, a good responsibility. And now the dream is realized in this spirit-filled community. I love how every month in our food drive, we have basically people who, so many people who contribute towards the food drive, who provide food, and then it gets distributed to other people in the church who are going through a tough time. 
love seeing that. I love seeing the mountains of food that's provided and the way in which people receive it and are so thankful. There's the community loving each other, fulfilling this, making us realize that what was happening in Acts chapter 4 is happening in 2023 at Fellowship in Dubai. Amen. Amen. And it's really this desire to make sure the poor are taken care of. It's not like Christians are the only ones who are interested in it. Political parties like to talk about it as well. I remember way back in 1987, a former Prime Minister of Australia, Bob Hawke, who, by the way, had the record, the world record for drinking a, a, uh, a yard of beer. That's kind of like a tube of beer in 11 seconds. He had the world record for drinking it quicker than anybody else. That's the kind of Prime Ministers we appoint in Australia. <laughs> Tells you something about us. But anyway, he was a good prime minister and he actually um, stopped drinking while he was a prime minister. And he said this just before one election. He said, by 1990, no Australian child will be living in poverty. And he himself regretted saying that a year later because he knew he couldn't pull it off. But I tell you, I love how the rulers of this land, the royal family, takes care of their own people, the Emirati people. Isn't that a beautiful thing? housing, medical coverage. You know, some of us come from countries where that's not the case. But these rulers, they take care of their own people, and that's something we ought to be thankful for. My home country is a welfare state. You know, 36% of the budget goes towards free education, medical care, um, pensions, unemployment benefits, sickness, age pensions, etc., not perfect, but wow, it's amazing. But how do welfare states operate? They impose taxes which feed the poor. Well, that's how economies run. Like in, in, um, You see that in Australia, in England, in Northern Europe, there are, there, are, there are a number of welfare states. Communism, they achieved it by usually bloody revolution, stealing land and then claiming to feed the poor that way. Uh, legalistic re- religion does it by guilt, forcing people. In the early church... What did it? It's the grace of God that so moved the heart of forgiven sinners and allowed them to be generous. The Spirit loosens our relationship to things, tightens our relationship to people. And one of the most beautiful case studies in all of this is Barnabas. We're going to hear more of him later in Acts. It's his nickname, verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, from the, whom the apostles called Barnabas. I didn't realize it was the apostles who nicknamed him uh, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and uh, bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. I mean, this guy's the real deal. Generous with his money, shares Jesus, uh, loves Jesus' people, reaches the lost. You want to imitate your someone, that, that's the guy you want to imitate. Now, we know his nickname is Barnabas, son of encouragement. And there are some really positive nicknames out there. I was, I was, you know, going, I was Googling nicknames. Like Mahatma Gandhi had a nickname, and it meant father of the nation. It's a beautiful nickname. Uh, I think of the actor Daniel Radcliffe. His nickname, not so positive, Shrimpy. I think we could do better than that. Mine used to be Pit Galea. Why? Because when I was younger, I was a bottomless pit. I could eat anything that came my way. But I wonder, if someone was to observe your choices and decisions, what nickname would they give you? Stingy? (laughs) Sourpuss? Or servant-hearted? Barnabas, son of encouragement. You know, after 30 years 
of ministry. I tell you, I've got so many stories I could share with you about people's generosity in, in the churches I've been involved in. I remember one time, uh, early on when I just started my first church plant, this one family gave me an envelope. It had a thousand bucks in it. And I, and I said, what's this for? He said, I want you to give it to, and, I, and we don't want to be known. So I want you to give it to this family that was a single a woman with four children. She was doing it hard on her own. That's amazing. And on the way, I stopped off at my mum's place for lunch. And I said, hey, mum, look at this. And uh, she said, what's that? She said, I said, a family at church was giving 1000 Australian dollars. That, that was in the early 90s to this other family. Who She said, why would they do that? I said, because they're so thankful to God for being forgiven. They just want to keep sharing the love. It was a good witness. It was a very good witness. Oh dear, so many stories to tell. We, the building project uh, uh, at church, we had a building project in my previous church. And it cost a fair bit of money, right? Buildings, buildings aren't cheap. And so I, I had a pamphlet and I gave it to my doctor, uh, lovely uh, Chinese doctor and a Christian doctor. She didn't come to our church, uh, but I gave it to her. I said, oh, you might be interested in this. And uh, Lucia said, thank you, Ray. I didn't think much. A week later, a check was given to the church by her and her husband, $50,000. Wow, you're not even in our church and you did that. Wow, you're just so thankful for what God was doing. I was just so overwhelmed. I mean, you get so inspired and a little bit convicted and condemned by, by people's generosity. You think, gee, I, I want to be more like that. You know, Colossians says, uh, sorry, in Corinthians, Paul says, excel in the grace of giving. Keep doing a PB, a personal best. But, you know, do you ever wonder, you know, you ever think of, I, I think of Barnabas. You know, he sold that property and gave it to the apostles to distribute to the poor. I picture him in heaven right now. He's standing before Jesus, praising him. Do you think he's regretting selling that block of land? No way. Do you think he's regretting giving the money to the apostles to give to the poor? No way. He's enjoying the fact that he got to glorify God and in the process is glorified himself through the process. That's the gift that keeps on giving. Oh, the spirit who radically transforms. Now point two is the spirit who will not be mocked. You see, in chapter five now, there's a contrast between Barnabas, who we've just seen, and Ananias and Sapphira. And on the surface, they look like they're doing exactly the same thing. They've each sold property. They've taken the money to the apostles to distribute the poor. Okay, there's no difference. But there is a difference, isn't there? Look at, let's pick it up in verse 1. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, was it the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human <coughs> beings, but to God. Now, the problem wasn't, don't misunderstand that. The problem wasn't that Barnabas sold a block of land and gave all the money to the apostles to distribute to the poor. 
And Ananias and Sapphira only gave a portion of the money from the land that they had sold and given it to the poor. That wasn't the problem. The problem was very clear. Peter said it. The land before you sold it was yours to do whatever you want. And after you sold it, the money you got was up to you to do whatever you want. No one had a gun to your head. The problem here is they claim to have given it all when in fact they kept a portion. They functionally lied about what they'd given. And the spirit will not be lied to. <laughs> you see what they wanted? They wanted the applause of church and church leaders, not the applause of their father in heaven. They wanted to feed their own ego rather than feeding the poor. They wanted to come across as being very sacrificial without the cost. But why is this recorded? It's so embarrassing. It was such a good story. 3,000 getting saved, 5,000 getting saved, this person getting healed. You know why? Because the spirit won't pretend. It will not pretend about the failures that go on in the church. You know, it's written because it happened just as much as the miracles happened. That's why you can trust the Bible. It tells you the whole story, not just part of it. It reminds us, too, that the early church, not so perfect after all. Uh, I've been reading a book by John Dixon, and uh, it's called Bullies and Saints. <laughs> and its title, subtitle is, An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Christian History. And I like that. It's one of the best books on church history because you're not just getting... You know, Christians always love to tell the positive stories, and the non-Christians like to tell the bad stories. But you know what the true story is? It's actually both of them. The good and the bad. The good and the evil. And that's exactly what the Bible does. The Bible will tell you about David and Goliath, but it'll also tell you about David and Bathsheba as well. That's why you can trust it. That's why you can trust it. Now, notice how the sin of Ananias and Sapphira is understood by Peter. Chapter 5, verse 3. Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? So yeah, a spirit was at work in Ananias, but it wasn't the Holy Spirit. It was the father of lies who had seduced Ananias and Sapphira to lie to the apostles and in so doing lie to the Spirit of God. And the moment, you, the moment Peter said, lie to the Spirit of God and lie to God, you know one thing, the Spirit is a person. I know I'm going to keep saying this, but we keep forgetting this, that, that you know, the, the God that we worship is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not Father, Son, and Holy Power. So he, he, of course, he is powerful and he empowers us, but he is a person who is dwelling within you and amongst us. He is a he, not an it. And he has been lied. You can't lie to a power, but you can lie to a person. And by person, I don't mean human. I mean one with personality, identity. And the Holy Spirit is the one. See, the Old Testament was one long, one-way road that was promising not only the Messiah, Jesus, to come, but that the Holy Spirit would come. Ezekiel 36 was one of those promises. And I, the prophet Ezekiel says, and I will, sorry, God through Ezekiel said, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. When you lie to the church, you were lying to the spirit of God who dwells within and amongst the people of God. Whoa. And yet no one's expecting what's about to happen, right? 
So Peter confronts Ananias and Sapphira, just like he confronted the people who murdered the Messiah. There's a lot of confronting going on in the book of Acts. But unlike the rest, look what happens to them in verse 5. When Ananias heard this, he what? And died. He fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out and buried him. You know, we think of the spirit in a lot of ways. The spirit here has inspired fear. This is the only slaying in the spirit in the Bible. (laughs) There's no falling back when a pastor puts his hand on your head. There's a falling dead. (laughs) Judgment, swift and severe and sudden. And it's not like they didn't have time to repent. Because when um, Sapphira comes, the wife comes three hours later, not knowing that her husband had just died. Peter gives her the opportunity to repent. But nope. She maintains the lie, bangs, falls dead, just like her husband on the spot. And I I think, you know, if only one of them in the marriage had spoken up, if only one of them, Ananias especially, the husband, but even Sapphira, if only one of them said, oh, darling, this is not the right thing to do. If if we're not going to give them all, that's okay, but just let's tell the apostles we're not giving this amount when we're only giving that amount. Let's not lie to the Holy Spirit and and to the apostles. And it, it seems to me that in any given marriage, there's always, you know, there's someone who's more godlier than the other. I know even in my own marriage with Sandy, you know, at, at different points, each of us has been more generous than the other. And the general rule is this, that the less godly person should always be listening to the more godly person. Amen? Amen. And sometimes the more godly person isn't the husband. <laughs> Did I say sometimes? <laughs> Look, basically, we need, even in marriage, we need each other to help each other become more like Jesus, especially marriage. Now, we all love, love to see miracles of healing. Eh? I just, whenever I, I see one, I'm just so thankful to God. But you don't realize you want miracles. They're not just miracles of hearing. Sometimes they're miracles of judgment, like this one. You know, the parting of the Red Sea. Well, that was great for the Israelites who went through on the other side. It wasn't so great for the Egyptians who drowned under when the water collapsed back on them. And the result of this judgment in verse 5 and 11 is this. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Fear had, had taken place inside the church of God, had now taken place outside the church of God. Because friends, the spirit of God will not be mocked. So I wonder how's your conscience Are you heeding the warning here? I'm feeling it. It was their greed that caused them to lie about how much they'd actually given. It was their pride that had basically fueled their lies. It was their shame that kept them from owning the lies, coming clean. I wonder, it's a good question, isn't it? How tender is your heart and conscience I know there are some of us who have extremely sensitive conscience and feel guilty about anything and everything. I'm not talking to you. Just allow yourself to be washed by the blood of Jesus, because eh? you, you condemn yourself too much. But for the majority of us, that's not us. You know, it's very easy to you know, allow your conscience to get a little bit hardened. I knew a man who, um, he came up to me, he said, Ray, I've got to come clean. 
He said, I've been coming to church for five years. My family has benefited so much from the ministry here at the church for five years. And he said, I haven't given anything to church. And I said, he said, the spirit of God has just convicted me of this. And I'm not only going to start giving, I'm going to pay back the last five years of giving I should have given. And I said, bro, you don't have to do that. You can start with a clear conscience, start with a fresh start, okay? And, and he said, no. The Spirit of God has convicted me. I have to pay back the last five years. Well, who am I to get in the way of the Spirit of God and the conscience of God? <laughs> and I'm serious. Like I didn't mean that actually as a joke. Uh, I know it was about giving, but seriously, I, you could tell God was doing a work in his life. And I'm not saying that's the work that God will do in your life, but I, what I'm saying is God's Spirit had convicted him, and he was sensitive to that and was set free by it. But what do we make of this judgment? I mean, it's seriously, it's the ultimate form of church discipline. It's rare too, even in the New Testament. I mean, you do get in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul gives a prophetic utterance and says, some of you are sick and a couple of you have died because of the way you're treating each other in the context of the Lord's Supper. But that's not the norm. And I'm here to testify I've had quite a few people in my office over 35 years who have lied to me to my face, as I've realized later, and have gone on to live long lives. So yeah, it's rare. It doesn't happen a lot. Though I did hear a story uh, of a young pastor going to a, a, a rural town. Uh, he pastored this church. Oh man, this was one wild church. I mean, you know, they were sleeping with each other. They weren't interested in hearing the word of God. If he was going to discipline this church, he'd have to excommunicate the whole lot. And after about 18 months, he just couldn't cope anymore. And he, and he went on his knees and he says, God, I can't do it. You have to do it. Next 12 months, 18 people died in that church and unrelated events. Next year, after that, 200 people got baptized. It was like God had cleared out the junk. No, the, the death of Ananias and Sapphira is like the death of Achan in Joshua 7 as God's people were entering into the promised land 1,300 years earlier. It was a warning to the rest of us who would follow. Lying, lying to the people of God, lying to the Spirit is a very serious matter. Take heed. And yet I'm reminded of the grace of God because like you, my conscience isn't perfectly clean. Like you, I too have said things I shouldn't have said, half-truths. Like you, I've said one thing, done another. Uh, more recently, I'll, I'll, I say this with no shame, um, months ago I was on holidays. Last day of the holiday, I get an email, a text rather. In the text, I'm asked an innocent question. And, and I realise in that question... My conscience was not clear. I, I, I realized that months earlier, uh, I had misrepresented some information. The information was correct, but the way I had presented it was incorrect. And it functionally was, I, was li I had lied to the person. And I had sinned against them. And all night, when I got that text on the evening, all night, the Spirit of God was arm wrestling me. And I couldn't sleep because I knew something. I did it with a good motive originally, but I didn't have a clear conscience. It's one of those weird things where you, because the ends justify the means. You think because it's a good outcome, how are you doing it? Nope. 
And I wrote an extended email. I told that person, I'm deeply sorry. I functionally misrepresented information. I was wrong. I have sinned against you and I ask for your forgiveness. He was very kind and immediately forgiven me. I then said, I will be informing the elders of this and reported that to the elders. And they were gracious as well. But, you know, what do you do? When you find yourself in that situation, well, you could, I could have argued a case that could have covered me up. But what game, what game are we going to play? You keep doing that game. You just keep adding and adding one lie to another to another. I wonder, what will you do with the grace of God? Will you trample over his mercy and kindness? Remember, friends, God is no fool. Don't play games with him. Don't presume on his kindness. Don't justify your sins. Don't deal with your, with your failures that way. The Spirit won't do it. He will not be mocked. He will not be lied to. You know, there are some of us, you know, you know sorry, can I say, people, sometimes we say, I, I'd like to invite the Spirit of God into my life or I'd like to invite the Spirit of God to transform me. You, be careful when you say that because it's like inviting a lion into your bedroom. <laughs> he will not be mocked. So I wonder whether, you know, there are, there are lies that you're sitting on at the moment. You know, you've said something that's not true. Maybe to a brother or sister, a family member, someone at work. Before the sun sets, before your head hits the pillow, allow your conscience to be tender and respond and repent. Those of you who, you know, just allowing to enjoy the benefits of ministry but not giving your first portion to the Lord, allow the Spirit of God to convict you and set you free. But perhaps some of you aren't so much committed a lie. You're living a lie. You've got a loved one in a home country who you're married to, but you're sleeping and living with somebody else. That's a lie. I'm saying do not allow that lie to continue. You know, Ravi Zechariah, what a great Bible teacher he was. And after he died, we discovered through an independent, thorough investigation, over 200 people had been sinned against, women had been sinned by him, against him. Sorry, against them by him. Wow. He was living a lie. Now, I pray to God that he you know, asked for mercy before he left this earth. But what we're not going to do is pretend that it didn't happen. We don't solve the problem by denying, justifying, minimizing, trivializing. That is not the way children of God act. The Spirit of God is dwelling within you. Do not grieve the Spirit of God. Let him do his work in your life. His name is Holy Spirit. Let him live up to his name by wanting you to become more and more holy. Because the thing about saying, by, by keep on lying, is that you have to lie again and lie again and lie again. And you end up with a mountain of lies. And you know you always get busted anyway. The thing about hardening your heart is your heart only gets harder. Well, where do you think that's going to end? The thing about saying no to God is you get good at it. <laughs> And that's not the thing you want to get good at. So I beg you today, you're hearing the word of God with the spirit of God. And he's saying the spirit so radically transforms you is the spirit that will not be mocked. 
And you know why we can come to him? Even if you're living a lie and you feel like the biggest hypocrite, you know why you can turn it around? Because there is a God who sits on a throne of grace. And you can find grace and mercy in your time of need. You can bowl up to God right now and put it right. That is the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The spirit that transforms us is the spirit that will not be mocked. Is the spirit who has been grieved, but who is the spirit now who is wooing you back into repentance. So let him woo you back to the throne of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is indeed a heavy word, a loving word, a tough love word. And we thank you. We're thanking you for it. It is a hard medicine to swallow, but it is a good medicine to heal the soul. Your scalpel has been cutting deep into our hearts, but it is a scalpel that's come to heal, not to kill. And Lord, we pray today that the lying would stop, that the hardness of heart will stop, that the saying no to you in this or that area will stop, that our hearts will be turned to the Lord Jesus who sits on a throne of grace, whose arms are wide open. If only we would turn, turn from our sins, name them for what they are and be set free. Oh, Lord, we pray, do a beautiful, wonderful, miraculous work in us. Before the head hits the pillow, before the sun sets, Lord, transform us in Jesus' powerful name. And all the saints said, Amen Amen indeed.